the name of the message is the handwriting of God. You know, we have scriptures that talk about God giving us a new heart. Um, he's not talking about coming and removing the physical heart that we have and giving us a different physical heart. When it talks about God giving us a new heart, what it comes to talk about is God writing something in our heart. And he comes and writes the same thing in our heart that's in his heart. And what it happens is, is what Ezekiel says, is that we have a heart now that is uh, kindred to his heart. By his doing, to come and write in our hearts the same thing he writes in his heart. So that's the name of the message, and we'll just uh, pray real quick. Thank you, Father, for uh, sending your word. Thank you that it's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword and that it, it discerns your work in our midst so that we can enjoy the rest that, uh, that you've provided for us. Thank you, Father. Amen. Um, and that, that, the word of life, that's why the word of life comes. I don't know if we realize that. The word of life, um, the word that is the chief of all things. Back in Genesis, where it says, let there be light, and light appeared in, in the earth. That's the word of life. And that word of life, the reason why it appeared was to do a work. And it didn't just do a work uh, for no reason. It, it appeared to do a work in order to discern the work of God in our midst so that we could behold the work of God. And that in, in beholding the work of God, our hearts could be filled with the knowing that God is with us to be the God that we need. And so that's why God sends his word. He, he sends his word, which is the word of his life, which is his life. He releases his life into the earth and he releases his life into the earth to perform a work in our midst. A work which the scripture says, no one will believe, <laughs> right? Who hath believed the report? Who hath believed the word of the work that God's life entered into the earth and performed? And so that word of life enters into the earth to do a work and put that work on display in our midst and discern that work in our midst so that our hearts can be filled with the knowing that God is with us. And he's not just with us to be like, you know, over there in a corner hanging out. He's not over there somewhere far away. He's not just walking around like, uh, what was it, George Burns from Oh God, You Devil? He's not just like George Burns walking around sometimes every once in a while hearing a prayer. No, no, no. The word of life enters the earth to discern for us that God is with us. And he ain't just with us uh, arbitrarily. He's with us to be the God that we need. He's with us to serve us with everything we need. He's with us to provide for us what we need to find our hearts filled with peace and love and joy. He's with us to serve us with his rest, right? And he's with us to do that free from anything that we can do for him. Free from anything we can do for him. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't ever do anything. But I promise you what we're doing won't be to do something for him. Right? It will be because the God who knows that it's more blessed to give than to receive has been born inside of us on account of him serving us with himself, on account of him pouring everything he has in himself out onto us and us feeling so satisfied that we like that bread, the, the bread in the basket and the fishes. There's just so much there. There's just so much there. We just can't help but have it pour out of us. We ain't even trying to do nothing. We just find it pouring out of us. Hallelujah. 
I mean, you guys see me up here. Do you think I'm trying to do something, or do you think it's pouring out of me? Do you think you could stop me? Seriously, do you, do you think the world could stop me? They, they can't. They can't. They can't stop me, right? Because I've seen the, the, the God who's with me to serve me with his life. And when you see that God with you, nothing can stop you, right? And what the world always wants to come and do is try to veil your heart to that God, right? And so God sees that the world is trying to veil your heart to that God, and he sees it's an external thing, that the world is, look, look at the world around you, and it's trying to be a veil. So God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come and write on their heart. This word of life, this word that will discern their work in their midst, I'm going to get it inside of their heart so that it's within. And then they'll live by what's within. Their sight will become in their heart instead of by with what's without. Right? So glory to God. We, we, I've preached on these verses before, but it's been a long time. And um, I just enjoy the clarity that God keeps bringing in the gospel. But we'll, we'll take our, our reading from today, from Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll go um, from about verse 7 through, through verse 12. Um, and the author of Hebrews has re- remained nameless um, in the scriptures. Lots of people like to uh, postulate about who it is. Um, I used to always tell people who I thought it was. And then one day a very wise guy said to me, Greg, if God saw fit not to add the name, then maybe we shouldn't either. And I thought, you know what? I don't know if I can argue with that. And so I stopped telling people who, the, who I thought wrote the letter to the Hebrews, and I stopped trying to prove to them who it was, and now I just say the author of Hebrews. So, the author of Hebrews. <laughs> For if that first covenant, verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them... He says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. Okay, so just real quick, um, God found fault with the first covenant, right? That's what he found fault with. The reason why he found fault with it It's because it could never give birth to something in their heart where these people saw that God was with them to be their God. And so God's sitting around desiring to care for these people's lives. He's sitting around desiring to establish their life by the strength in his hand. And he saw that the first covenant, what the old covenant, was not able to fill the people's hearts with faith towards him. So he's busy talking about how we're going to have to have a different covenant, the kind of thing where we get who and what I am inside of their hearts, where they're not looking on it externally, but where they see the fulfillment or the manifestation of my life internally, dwelling inside of them through the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't find fault with the people. I promise you this, even had the people worked everything in that covenant right, they still would have needed Jesus to come die on the cross and be raised from the dead, okay? So he's not finding fault with the people. He's finding fault with this covenant because it can't, it isn't the fulfillment of what he wants. It couldn't give him what he wanted. 
So there's going to be a new covenant, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Okay, real quick right there. We all have our own ideas when we read that word laws. And God will write his law, put his laws into our minds and write them in our hearts. You guys already think you know what laws are. You've already decided. Okay, so what we're going to try to get you to do is put that to the side for a second. And you maybe consider that you have no idea what that word actually means according to the scriptures. Okay, but if to give just a hint, I guess this is it's a teaser spoiler alert. That's what it is. Spoiler alert. I love what Nick said in the Bible study Wednesday night. Thomas Kiefer's son. He, he's going off to uh, Wisconsin um, by himself because he took this job across the country and he's going off by himself. And he said something and I'm going to butcher it. He said it so much more eloquently than I could. He said something about, you know, he's. He's going off alone for the first time. He's never been away for the first time. He's never been north or in the cold for the first time. He's a Louisiana boy. And what he said about all that and all these new things and all these unknowns is I can't wait to see what eternal life does inside of me as I encounter all these things. I can't wait to see how eternal life strengthens me on the inside as I encounter all these things. And then he said, spoiler alert, eternal life won. (laughs) Eternal life wins, right? And so his mind is filled with the winning. His mind isn't filled with the the, what could happen. And he, he said, I feel the pressing in. But in the midst of feeling the pressing in, I feel the unknown. But in the midst of feeling that, I find that my heart is filled with an excitement over what I can't wait to see what eternal life's gonna do inside of me. Hallelujah. Um, so when you get, when you, when you read this, you get like a spoiler alert when he talks about putting his laws in our minds and writing them in our hearts, he gives a hint or a spoiler alert in the very next verse. When he says the result of me doing that will be that I will be able to be their God and they will live as my people. And so the thing he's coming to write on their heart is some kind of a thing that can persuade these people that he is their God so that they are able to live as his people. And if you want to put new covenant language to it, what you could say there is whatever it is that God comes to write on our hearts, the thing he comes to write on our hearts is with the intent that we could know him as father, with the intent that we could see that he's with us to be the father that we need He's with us as the one that will father his life in us free from our works so that we can live as little children. That's the intent of what he comes to write on our hearts. He's trying to do something inside of our hearts where we're no longer carrying the burden of our own lives, but where we're living in the earth as little children because we see there's one with us who has taken thought for our life exceedingly abundantly above all we could even think to take thought for of our own lives. I mean, most of us were never thinking we could have glorified immortal flesh. Most of us were never thinking that the fullness of God is going to manifest in our bodies. Hallelujah. Most of us were never thinking like that. Most of us were just thinking, well, if I can just have a minimal amount of pain, if I could just have a great job, if I could just have a nice spouse, 
If my kids could just be perfect, right? Most of us, that's what we're busy thinking of. Well, God's busy thinking of, I'm going to empty all that I have in myself into them, right? And so whatever he comes to write in our hearts, it's with the intent that we could find the burdens that we're carrying from our own death management, right? Because listen, guys, there's a whole lot of cares that come along with the life that's in this world. And the reason why there's so many cares that come along with the life that's of this world is because this life is perishable. And so there's a whole lot of things you got to do to care for a life that's dying, right? Well, God, he, he, whatever it is he writes on our hearts, he comes to write in our hearts the word of how he took thought to care for our lives that were dying. And the thought that he took to care for our lives that were dying is how he could separate us from the body that's dying and he could build us a body that can never die again. And then he could clothe us in the body of his life. That's what he comes to write in our hearts because he wants us to live as little children, not with the cares of our lives. You got a little child. You think he's worrying about his life? When he climbs up on something high, you think he's thinking, if I fall, I could get hurt. There's no fear in his heart, is there? Right. See, God wants us to be able to live in the world without the fear that comes from looking at all the things that are wrong and looking at all the things that can harm our life. And so he comes to write something on our hearts where we could see that he's with us to father his life in us so we could have the fear of the world that's in the world from death removed from our hearts and we could live innocently as little children, right? Just enjoying what comes, right? I mean, little children, disappointment leaves quickly, doesn't it? I mean, they got like, what are they? What are they I was, I'm watching this Ted Lasso show on Apple. And the, the Ted Lasso, the coach, he tells the one player, you need to be like a goldfish. You need to have a memory that's 10 seconds long. <laughs> right? Because the guy's messing up all the time. They, they're playing football, soccer. We call it soccer. And the guy's messing up all the time, and he's all in his head about messing up. Right? And they'll teach you this. Some of the best professional players maybe weren't the greatest athlete, but they had this ability to forget the last play. Because if your mind gets filled with the last mistake, if your mind is filled with the interception, like you're, you're, go, you're out there thinking too much and now you're going to make more mistakes. So a little child has a memory like a goldfish. Ten seconds, it's gone, right? And it's, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I fell down and hurt myself ten seconds later, right? And so whatever we want to say about what God is writing on our hearts, it's with the intent that we would be like that, with the memory like a goldfish, right? That we would be so aware of him with us and what he's done to care for our life that was dying and that he cared for it so much that he brought it to a place where it can't die anymore, that we would be like a goldfish where in, when we encounter weakness or tribulation or calamity, we'd have like a 10 second memory, right? Where it comes and why does it come? The guy, Dave, that ordained me, you know what he used to say? Why did it come? The tribulation and the pain, it came to pass. <laughs> It comes to pass. It comes to pass. And so we're watching it pass us by. It's like the Passover, right? What was the Passover? The Passover was that there's death, but it's passing over them. And so listen, guys, yea, though we walk through a valley shadowed by death, man, we fear no evil because when we see the death, we see that it's passing by us. We don't see that it's resting upon us. You see? And then you got like a, a, a memory like a goldfish. Did I say jellyfish ever? Okay, glory to God. <laughs> no, it's goldfish. 
Ted Lasso is a pretty funny show, man. You laugh, you cry. It's amazing. And it's one of those kinds of things. Are any of you guys like me? Like, I won't watch something for a long time. Like, I just feel I'll never like that. I'm never watching that. And I'll do that for like a month or two. And then when I finally watch the thing, I love it. <laughs> and you can't keep me from it. But Ted Lasso, I love it. They ought to give me some type of, you know, donation for the advertisement or something. <laughs> okay. So we, we want to put this in this context. I don't know if you guys understand this about me, but I love studying the scriptures. And I love bringing it all together. Jesus said, uh, ye do err gr greatly not knowing the scriptures. One of the things that causes us to err is that we don't know the scriptures, right? And if we knew the scriptures and what they were pointing to and how they fit together, we'd walk in a whole lot less error. So I love bringing the scriptures together for everybody. So I'm going to kind of tie this in with the whole spirit of prophecy. But when the author of Hebrews says that God will put his laws into our minds and he will put write his laws in our hearts, they're speaking to Hebrew people. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews. And these Hebrew people would have been intimately acquainted with the old covenant, right? And the things that went on there. And so when he says God will put his laws in your mind and write them on your hearts, the author of Hebrews is drawing a contrast with something from the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy just so happens to be called the book of the law. It just so happens to be called the words of the law. It just so happens to be called the logic that's contained in the law. And so when the author of Hebrews mentions this putting in the mind and writing the laws on the heart, he's drawn a contrast with something that happened all the way back in the book of Hebrews and if, or the book of Deuteronomy. And what happens is, is we're lazy. Is that, are we okay with that? We're lazy. We just want to read that letter and we don't want to know what it says. We don't really want to know all the things behind it. We just want to read it. We want to implement our own understanding and then go with that as if it's the truth, right? But you're never going to understand what this guy's talking about if you don't see back to what he's pointing to and you'll completely miss it. So he's pointing back to something that happened in the, the book of Deuteronomy and he's drawing a contrast with that. And what he's saying is, he's showing those people how the thing that God was desiring back then, the thing that God was wanting back in the old covenant is realized through Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And the author of the Hebrews gives us a good idea of what God's desiring. Some of you think God's desiring for you to serve him. You know what God's desiring? He's desiring to be your God. And he's, he's desiring for you to be able to live in this world as his people. I don't, I'm going to get into this later, and I'll give a, a real short spoiler alert. I guess that's going to be the word for this message, spoiler alert. You can't be someone's God if you're requiring something from them. You can only be someone's God if you require nothing from them, and you're going to give them everything. And neither can you be the people of a God if you think that God is requiring something from you. You can only be the people of God if you see that that God's requiring nothing of you and he comes to give you everything. That's the only way it can, it can go down that way. That's the only definition you can actually have for God. And we're going to get into that later because most of the characteristics we ascribe to God would disqualify him from being God. But I'll get into that later. And he, if, if you're looking for a scriptural reference, Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. This is the contrast he's drawing. 
Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets before your eyes. What he's saying is, and he's talking about the book of Deuteronomy, take these words, the sayings that are contained in this book of the law, take the logic that's contained in this law, the teaching and instruction that's contained in Deuteronomy, take it and bind it on your arm so that it's always in front of your face and you're always looking at it. That's what it says. Now, the, what he's talking about there, if you want to know in the scriptures what it's called, it's called the Teflon, which is what the Hebrew word would be. But if you read in the English scriptures, the King James, it would be called the phylacteries. You guys remember the verse where Jesus says, woe is you scribes and Pharisees, you broaden your phylacteries. Now, what this thing was, was a little box. And it was a very small little box. And some of you may remember like three or four years ago, I put one on so that people could see what it was. But you could Google phylacteries or tephilim if you want to see a picture of what this looked like. But what they did is they took a little box. And in the little box was a scroll that was rolled up. In the scroll, certain things were written on. And they would put that in the little box and they would have a box wrapped on their arm, wound up, and they would have one on their head, just like that. And the whole idea was that the words that were contained in this law would be before their face always so that they would never forget. And the, the, the purpose of them writing these things on their arms so it would be in front of their face all of the time, you can find the purpose for why they would be doing that in Deuteronomy 6, where God comes and says, you shall have one God, the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods, right, other than him. And he goes on to explain what it means to have other gods is for you to worship the works of your own hands. That's why you would bind it on your arm. So every time you went to trust in the strength in your own hand to serve yourself with life, you would see that thing on your arm. And you would, oh no, right in front of your face, you would see the works of God. And the works of God would be in front of your face. And what it was supposed to do was act as a two-edged sword that was discern the work of God in your midst. And so you would have your heart circumcised from trusting in your own works by your face being confronted with the work of God. That's the phylactery. That's the teflon. That's what it's talking about. That was what it was designed to do. You could sum up the entire book of Deuteronomy with this. If you understood everything that was written in this book, if what was written in this book was born in your heart, then you would never trust in the strength of your own hand. And you would have one God, the Lord your God, Yahweh. You would find your heart only trusting in his work. That's the whole purpose of the book of Deuteronomy. That's what it would produce in somebody. That's why Jesus come and said, when they said, good master, what is the greatest commandment? When it says, what is the greatest commandment? It doesn't mean, what is the thing that we should do the most? When it says, what is the greatest commandment, what it's talking about is, what is the point of everything that's written in the commandment? What is its intent? What is it trying to do? And Jesus answers by saying, the greatest thing that comes forth from the commandment is that you'll find something in your heart where you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, that doesn't mean that you do everything right. That's not how you love God. You don't love God by doing everything right. Herein is love, John comes and says. Not that you love God, but that he loves you. 
And so when Jesus talks about the point of the commandment, the point of Deuteronomy is for it to produce something in you where you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What Jesus is saying is that your heart will be filled with the knowing of the love that this God has for you, that he come to serve you. He come to do a work to satisfy your longing for life, and he doesn't require anything from you or any of your works to serve you. That's what it would be for you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You would say, this guy loves me so much, I don't need to pick up my own life. This guy has come and picked up my life. That's what it would mean, right? You would see God as the good Samaritan. You wouldn't see him as the thief. And so that's, that's what the, the point of the commandment was. And so guys, God wants to serve people with life. That's why he's called God. That's why he wants people to know that he's God. If we just think about this logically, it becomes obvious. God's the only one who has life in himself right? And so if he's the only one that has life in himself and he wants us to live and not die, well then by necessity he would have to come and serve us with life, not us serving him with life. And so God is looking far and he's looking wide. He's searching under stones. He's searching everywhere for someone, for some people that will let him be himself, that will let him be father that will let him serve them with everything that he has in himself, that will let God pour himself out for them. He's walking around looking for someone that will be his people, that will see that he's there to empty himself for them, and they live in the world enjoying the rest that he serves them with. That's what he's looking for. And I, I, I don't know if I said it here or in the Bible study, because some of you might be thinking, well, what are you talking about, man? Well, if you go and read Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 20, Paul quotes Jesus. And you know what he says that Jesus says? It's more blessed to give than to receive. So when, when God's thinking about what gives him a buzz, when he's thinking about, that's my jam, you know what he's thinking about? Giving myself to people and not taking or needing anything back from them but for them to let me give myself because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so that's the, that's the desire in God's heart. He's wanting to give all of himself to people. And he's wanting to do that free from what they can do for him. That's where he's sitting at. That's where he was desiring back in the old covenant. That's what he was trying to bring forth in the old covenant. When he tells Moses, tell the people to bind it on their arm so that the words of my work will be in front of their face always. And you could see this play out perfectly when you look at the Hebrews. If you look at the Hebrews, when they were in bondage to, um, Billy, are you hurt too? Are you all right, man? Well, I'm sorry I didn't pray for you during the prayer. But now I see you up there, you know, like elevating your leg. And so, man, I'll catch you, I'll catch you on the other side. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> but the Hebrews... God saw the Hebrews when they were in bondage to Pharaoh. You guys remember that? That whole dynamic where the Hebrew people were in bondage to Pharaoh? And, and when he saw them, Ezekiel says that his heart was filled with love for them when he saw them. And what it means that his heart was filled with love for these Hebrews is he saw the hard labor that these Hebrews were suffering at the hands of Pharaoh. 
One of the things Pharaoh even come and did was told these guys to make bricks without straw. Now, to some of you, that might not mean anything, but to people like Billy that understand how things are made and understand how things are constructed, trying to make bricks without straw back then was like impossible. Do you know what trying to make bricks without straw is? It's like us trying to produce immortality ourselves. It's, imp it's hard labor, which is one of the pictures that's trying to, to, to draw, guys. The Hebrews, under the bondage of Pharaoh, is trying to paint a picture for us about our lives. And so God saw the Hebrews suffering at the hand of Pharaoh. And when he saw them that way, you know what he said? These people need a God. These people are in need of a God. And he looked around and he said, you know what? I'm the only God. I'm the only God there is. That's why he says there's one God, the Lord your God. And so God sat with the desire to be their God. He sat with the desire to be the God of these people, Hebrews, that weren't even considered to be a people. He said, I'll come and show up and then I'll be their God and then they'll be able to live as my people and they will become a people by my hand and not by their own hand. And so God saw them in the place where they're suffering at the, under the hands of Pharaoh and he wanted to care for them. He saw that they were in need of salvation and he saw that they were in need of having life. And he said, I want to be their God and that he wanted to be their God so they could live as a people whose lives were fathered by his hand and not by their own hand. Because when they were under the bondage of Pharaoh, everything they got was on account of their own labor. It had nothing to do with the labor of God. And so God comes and says, I'm going to labor for them. I'm going to pour myself out for them. And so their lives can be fathered by my hand because they're busy living in the place where their lives are fathered by their own hand. And that's filling them with many labors and annoyances. They're sweating all the time from the brow. And not only are they sweating from the brow, it's one thing if you sweat from the brow and you end up eating grapes, but you ain't, they ain't eating grapes, God said. They eating thorns and thistles from all their labor. And so God's like, listen, man, I want to hedge them about with my life. I want them to reap where I sow. I don't want them trying to reap from them sowing their own strength. I want to sow my strength into the earth, and I want them to reap from where I have sown. You can go read all of this in Deuteronomy, by the way. All of it. Um, he wanted them to be able to live all their days enjoying the fruit of his work, living in the land he provided for them, living in the houses he built for them, and reaping the fruit from the vineyards that he planted for them. You can go and read it. The land flowing with milk and honey. Do you know what kind of a land it is? It's a land where they won't have to build their own houses. They won't build their own buildings. They won't plant their own vineyards. But they'll reap from where God sowed. That's what it's talking about there. And so God, man, he sees these Hebrews, and he wants them to be able to enjoy the rest that comes from walking in his work, right? And I'm going to keep doing this as we go through it, but if, if we put new covenant language to it, he wanted the Hebrews to be able to live as little children, not taking thought of their own life, right? When you guys had Ryder, you could have the same kind of a thought as God. You could see he needs all these things, couldn't you? How do you think he was going to get them? You guys. We will be your parents and you will be our sons. And how will he know that he's your son? Do you know how he's going to know that he's your son? He's going to grow up watching all the things you've done for him. And he'll live in the earth as your son because he'll see that it's been by your hand that he's been fed and that he's been clothed, right? And not by his own hand. That's the same kind of dynamic with God. 
And so God says, all right, I sit with this desire to be their God. And he says, how can this happen? How can I bring this about? Right? God, the, ma the maestro. How can I orchestrate this whole thing? He says, the way I can be their God and the way they'll be able to live as my people, enjoying the fruit of my labors, is if I can teach them that I am their sufficiency for life. If I can teach them and instruct them about that, that's how they'll see me as their God and be able to live as my people. If I can show these people the strength in my life, if they can see the mercy that's in my hand, if they can see the mercy that's in my eyes, if they can see the grace that's in my eyes for them, then they'll live all their days knowing their provision for life is contained in the works of my hands and not in the works of their own hands. That's how they'll live. They'll no longer live sweating by the brow, trying to attain to life through their own works. But they'll live in the earth seeing the work that God has performed. And they'll live in the earth by the life he served them with through his own work. Hallelujah. And when he says when they can see that, what will happen is, is death won't be able to come near them. And they'll never perish from off the land. That's also all in Deuteronomy. I'm just not going to stop and quote all the verses, otherwise we'll never get finished. Right? So that's what God says will, will cause this to happen for these Hebrews. Understand again, what is God wanting more than anything? See, we think God's wanting more than anything for these Hebrews to behave properly. No, no, no. You know what God's wanting more than anything? For these Hebrews to let him empty himself for them. That's what he wants more than anything. I want more than anything to care for their life. That's what I want more than anything. Okay, but you, you have to understand these Hebrews, man, they needed a circumcision of their hearts. You know why they needed a circumcision of their hearts? Because, listen, they came from a world. They came from a life where it was their own works and the strength in their own hand that was their food for life. I mean, they just came from the bondage of Pharaoh. And so their whole mind was filled with their own labor and their own work. That's what their mind was filled with. They had no comprehension of someone coming and serving them with life. Everything they thought, everything they knew was about how our own works are what sustains this people. Our own strength. And so they needed a circumcision of the heart. And God says the way that their hearts can be circumcised from that kind of thinking, where they're worshiping the works of their own hands, is if my strength, if the strength in my hand can be discerned for them in their midst. That's the way it can happen. And so God's like, we're going to unwrap that thing. And that's where you would go and read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, For the word, is God, it's, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so God is busy thinking, these guys need the thoughts and intents of their hearts discerned because they come from a life of laboring. They're not knowing me. They're used to the kind of God that looks like Pharaoh, the kind of God that demands everything from them and won't give them anything. They're used to that kind of a God and they're needing for me to be discerned for them in their midst in the way that I can be discerned for them in their midst is if I can put my work, the work that I will do, the strength I will sow to feed them with life right in front of their face. And if they can see the strength in my arm right in front of their face, their hearts will be circumcised from looking to the strength in their own hand. That's what he's busy thinking. This is when God comes and gives Deuteronomy. And so when God gave Deuteronomy to, Deuteronomy to Moses, the idea behind that 
was that these words, these words I'm going to give you, Moses, these words can persuade the people, I am their God. That's really all you need. I know we all, th- I mean, we all got a long list of what we need. I promise you, listen, I'll just be transparent. I got a long list too, because there's a whole lot of stuff that I want to do. Like I want to plant churches that preach this gospel all over the earth. I do. Well, that takes a lot of stuff, right? And so I know we all have our our long list of what we need. We all see the things in our lives. But really all you need is to know that God is your God. That's really all that you need. The people need to know that I'm their God. That's where he gives the book of Deuteronomy. And so God tells Moses, listen, Mo. We got God so seriously. You think God ain't got nicknames for us? Uh, Me and God, we joke back and forth about me. I'm the Incredible Hulk. (laughs) He jokes with me all the time. Greg, you spend all your days trying not to be the Hulk, right? And he said, and then you become the Hulk. (laughs) He thought, I like the Hulk, Greg. (laughs) I'm still, I I don't like the Hulk yet, right? But I think I'm benign to the Hulk now. I no longer despise the Hulk. I'm just not sure if I love the Hulk yet. Um, But bear with me, man. God is good. And so God tells Moses to have the people put these words, the words of this law, on their arm so they can be reminded all of the time, I am the God they need. And so you might think, well, what was the words that God had them put on their arm? Because it's a very small box. That's why Jesus says, woe is you, scribes and Pharisees, you brought in your phylacteries. You have now added to the words that were supposed to be all before your face all the time. And you've added all this nonsense. And you've added the doctrines and commandments of men. And it isn't just the Israelites that did that. The whole modern day church has broadened our phylacteries. And we have added to the words of the work of God's hand. And we have added to it in every instance we could have it. Everything is born from what we're going to do for God and what he demands for us to do. And so everything that was written there, it was about everything God did when he came and took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Everything that was written there was how the life that they desired, the place it would be found, was by having faith in God to serve it to them. And the curse that they didn't want, the cursed life that they had under Pharaoh, they would find that by trusting in the works of their own hands, which would be to have another God other than the Lord your God. Right? That's how it would be. So when God came and grabbed the Hebrews by the hand and led them out of Egypt, they had very specific needs. Like they needed something from God. And so in order for someone to be their God, this God has to meet their needs. They needed to be delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians. They needed a land to to dwell in. They needed to be hedged about with something or hedged about from that which sought to harm their lives. They needed to be protected. They needed food and water. Well, God came and grabbed them by the hand and he did everything they needed. And he didn't ask for anything from them. And so he was manifesting himself as their God. He was exceedingly abundantly above everything they asked or everything they needed. 
And so God has Moses tell the people to bind the works that he's done to feed them with life on their arm. He has Moses tell the people to, to bind the words of the work that I did when I came and took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. When I parted the Red Sea, when I caused death to pass over them, when I poured down manna from heaven, when I brought forth water out of the rock, when I gave them a land where there was houses already built and vineyards already planted and where the buildings were already built and they didn't have to show their own strength to reap. Write these words on their arm so that the words of my work will all the time be before their face. Right on their arms, Moses, that I was the rock. I was the fire that led them by night. I was the cloud that led them during the day. Right on their arms, the words of how I tabernacled with them and I was their food for life. That's what he says to do. Find those things on their arm. So the strength in my hand will always be before their eyes and their hearts can be kept from looking to the strength in their own hand and they can inherit the life and the land I promised them and they can live all the days of their life that in the rest that comes from my work. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy. Moses ain't going over to the promised land and it wasn't because God was punishing Moses. There's an obscure passage, I think it's in Numbers, and it says the reason Moses wasn't going over to the promised land is because the people started looking to Moses instead of God. And so Moses sees he's not going. And God's busy thinking, well, we don't want the people to perish from off the land. We want them to inherit the land. And the only way they can perish from off the land is if they start having intimacy with their own works, trying to feed themselves with life. And so we're going to write something on their hand, on their arm, so it will always be before their face, the table I've prepared for them and the things I've done to feed them, apart from anything they can do for me. And then that will, they will inherit the land, and they'll never perish from off the land. Now listen, guys, that thing in Deuteronomy talking about inheriting the land and never perishing from off the land, that's talking about us inheriting the earth. And you know how we're going to inherit the earth? By seeing the work that God did to reconcile the word back to himself and to give us the kingdom as a gift, free from anything we could do for him. But we don't have it written on our arms. It's written in our heart. The work that he's done to give us the land. You, like I said, you got to meet certain qualifications to be God or to even be called the God of a people. You see, the world has its own ideas about what a God is. And sadly, the church has taken most of its ideas about what a God looks like from the world's thoughts. we got lots of pagan gods. And you know, all those pagan gods, they require things from the people. You can't actually be the God of the people if you require things from them. I don't know if you realize that. That means you need something from the people. If you need something from the people, you can't be called God because God needs nothing. In order to be God, you must be able to take the care of the people's lives completely onto yourself. Not partially, completely onto yourself. Lisa, how much care does Ambry take of her own life? You... you you, you've taken it completely onto yourself, haven't you? That's what God's trying to teach you. That same dynamic. You could see God in that thing. God knows the burden that the world has put on you.
God knows. You're not alone. You can look God in the face and talk with Him and tell Him, Lord, sometimes I struggle. He can identify with you, right? And He can talk to you and He can lift that burden off of you. He can show you how He can be your God and Ambry's God and how He will carry the burden of the care that comes for Ambry's life. And He will strengthen you in the inside to do it. You got to be able to take the care of the people completely onto yourself. And it's got to be free from the works of the people and anything they can do for you. Or you can't say you're God. You can't say you're their God. And it's got to be to the degree that if the people are in need of faith in order to participate in your life, that you're going to be the one that comes and does a work to provide them with the faith. And guess what? The scriptures actually say that about God. God does not demand faith from us. I know you got to make a decision. You got to make a decision. Listen, man, you you might make the decision, but the decision you make is on account of the God that showed up and persuaded you of who he was. And so the scripture says that God gave to every person the measure of faith. And so you've taken upon yourself so much to provide them with everything they need to participate in life and God likeness that even should faith be needed, you're going to come and do a work to supply them with the faith that's needed. That's the only way you can be called God. You must be intimately acquainted with the people. I mean, intimate, like one, where like, you know their thoughts. You felt their feelings. You have tasted their hurts. You have felt their weaknesses. You know their desires. If you want to qualify as God, you need to be intimately acquainted with what is needed for the people to have life. You must be intimately acquainted with what is needed to protect them from harm, what is needed to keep their hearts from fear, with what is needed to hedge them about, to fill them with abundance. You must be intimately acquainted with that. And you must possess the ability to serve the people with the peace and the love and the joy they need. And you must possess the ability to give them that peace and that love and that joy apart from anything else. You're the only thing needed. Got to be able to do it free from their works. Listen, you cannot be someone's God. This speaks to the pagan gods. We don't realize this, guys, but we painted the image of Yahweh, in the image of pagan gods. And we preached our gospel as if God was a pagan God. And we show up every Easter, and we don't call it Resurrection Day, we call it Easter. I'm not trying to get legalistic about that, so don't misunderstand me. I'm drawing a, a correlation Because we call it Easter, and then we come and talk about God as if he's a pagan God. You can't be someone's God if you're requiring sacrifices and offerings from the people in order to care for them. You can't call yourself their God. And actually, you're pointing them to the strength in their own hand to provide for themselves if you're requiring sacrifices and offerings to care for them. Should there be? an offering or a sacrifice that's actually needed to care for the people's lives, you would have to be the one that provides the sacrifice. What did God say? What did Abraham say? God will provide himself the lamb. What about Cain? What did God do with Cain? Oh, God brought the lamb. There's a lamb right outside the door, Cain. Take it and offer it. And so should there need to be a sacrifice or an offering to to care for the people's lives? If you're God, that means you provide the sacrifice and the offering. You don't demand it from the people. 
Well, someone might say, well, weren't there sacrifices and offerings in, in the Old Covenant? Yes. And you know what they were all talking about? The sacrifice and the offering God would provide. It was never about the people providing those things. God was teaching the people he would provide himself the lamb. As the scripture says in Hebrews and in Psalms, sacrifice and offerings, I never wanted. But a body I've prepared that it could be offered for you. And you could eat from that body that I prepared, the offering I made, and you could find the life you desire from that body. My lamb. After the lamb was slaughtered in Exodus and they put the blood over the doorpost, they ate the blood, the, the meat. The lamb was their food for life. God never desired sacrifices and offerings. He don't need sacrifices and offerings. He ever liveth. We needed it. And he provided the lamb that could feed us with life. Hallelujah, man. Now we're also, a, what does Moses say? These are stiff-necked people. <laughs> I'll speak it more fondly of us. We are, uh, it's not finicky. I always try and say finicky instead of fickle. We are fickle kind of a people, right? Like, you can't just come tell us something. Like, whether you think you scrutinize things or not, we scrutinize, right? We like, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. So mankind, I mean, God has to meet certain kind of qualifications to be God. But mankind is the kind of people who need to be persuaded that God is with them to be their God. We ain't just going to blindly be like, oh, okay, he's with us. Hallelujah. No, no, it, it requires persuasion. It requires proof. And what I want to even say that it, it's like an interview process that's going on in our hearts. Our hearts are all the time conducting an interview process. It's like when I worked for that finance company. I had like 40 or 50 employees at one point. And so I was like always hiring nonstop, nonstop. And when I was hiring people, I didn't just like put pill names out of a hat. It wasn't like, let's see who wins the draw. Oh, hallelujah. No, I was scrutinizing the people. And we had them take a test. And they took a skills test. And they had to go through many different kinds of tests. Math, language, English, all types of word problems, thought problems, all types of stuff. And then after, if they passed that first part, we'd separate it by that. Then I would interview the people. And we'd put them through interview processes. And then I'd look them in the eye. Right? And, and I had to be persuaded that they had the qualifications to fill the position. Because listen, if they couldn't fill the position, you know what I was left with? I had to carry their weight. And so, no, 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 no. I'm already carrying enough of a weight. I ain't carrying their weight too. So I'm scrutinizing these people. Listen, man, our hearts are doing the same thing with God. We're scrutinizing God to see if he has the skill set to be our God. Our hearts are interviewing him to see if he has the qualifications, if he can meet the things that we need to actually be our God. Because we ain't trying to have a God that can't meet the qualifications and we're left being our own God. And when we think this God doesn't meet the qualifications of what we need, do you know what we're busy doing? Picking up our own life. <laughs> so guys, our hearts are examining God. They are. They are. They're examining God, and they want to see if he can be our God. Our hearts are looking. Does he possess the ability to give our lives the care that we need? And we're gathering evidence. 
And we don't just gather evidence. The world is also trying to show us evidence. The world is like, I don't know. What about this? Where's your God now, Jesus? It's like the world coming along to help you in the interview process. <laughs> Listen, it's tough enough with my own heart. Will you just... I mean, listen, guys, we'll struggle to give ourselves over into God's arms. We'll struggle to commit the care of our lives into his hands. Unless we can be fully persuaded, he has the ability that is needed to be our God. That's the only way we're going to do it. Now, listen, God's not like, why don't they just believe? Like, he knows the human heart. He actually made our hearts for this dance. He actually, it's a dance, actually, the persuasion, the influencing. It's a romancing, actually. He enjoys the romancing. He doesn't see it as a slight. He's not like, why don't they just believe they love me? He gets a buzz out of romancing you into his love. He gets a buzz out of pursuing you relentlessly. Do you know why? Because he loves to pour himself out. Because the third is more blessed to give than to receive. And so... He's happy to apply to our hearts for the position of God. I know the pagan God doesn't allow for that kind of a thing, right? The pagan concept of God that the church has been taught and that they've taken hook, line, and sinker can't think of God like that, that he's happy to come and apply to our hearts. You know why he's happy? He sees us as a co-equal. He doesn't see us as some worm or some dog in the courtyard. He doesn't see us as a jester. He looks at us as an equal. He bows his head to us as a co-equal. And he's happy to honor us and to come and persuade our hearts. He's happy to do it. He's gentle and he's meek. And he enjoys the process of convincing us that he's more than qualified for the position of God in our lives. He's happy to do it. It's not grievous for him to win your heart over. He's okay with that. And so guys, human beings were made for a specific kind of life. Just like those Hebrews need a specific kind of care. We're a specific kind of a people. And we were made for a specific kind of life. So we require a specific kind of care also. You guys know that? I mean, the first, the first evidence, you, you don't need much evidence. But the, the first thing that can prove that to you is when you don't think you're getting what you need, how do you feel? What was that video game, baby, uh, Becky? What was that video game that you would play? And if the girl didn't get asleep enough? The Sims. You had to do all these things with the little Sims character. And if they didn't eat on time or go to sleep on time or if they started beating their head up against the wall and stuff, right? Listen, we go haywire. All of a sudden, if there's an area of our life that ain't getting the care that it needs, we can go haywire, right? And so listen, we need a specific kind of a care. So if you're going to be my God, I got to know that you intimately acquainted with the care that I need, and I got to know that you possess the ability to give my life the care that it needs. And so where were human beings at? We were in the place where we were perishing. And not only were we perishing, but we were in a world where death was reigning over the world. And consequently, death was also reigning over us. And because death was in the world and death was reigning over us, our hearts were filled with fear because of that death that surrounded us. And that left us in captivity to hard labor, just like the Hebrews were left in captivity to hard labor under the abusive hand of Pharaoh. We were just like those Hebrews. And so we sat as a people, and what we were in need of is a life that can overcome death in the flesh. 
and raise up a body that is completely free from death and that can never be corrupted by sin ever again. That's what we were in need of. That's, we're the kind of people that needed that. We were in need of the kind of life that could separate death from this world as far as the east is from the west and remove it from all of creation and that it would remove it so far away that to the degree that death is no more. And it's completely removed from our memory. This is the kind of thing we need. If someone's going to be our God, that's what we need. If someone's going to convince us they're our God, those are the things that we need. Everybody in here is intimately acquainted with the pain and the hurt that has come from the death and the tribulation and the corruption in this world. And we're in need of a God that can serve us with a life that can't be overcome by death and corruption, but that will actually overcome death and corruption. We're in need of a God that can provide a life or sow a life into the earth that will even remove death from the earth to the point where there's no more death anymore. And that it's so far away that we can't even think of it ever again. And so we can never feel fear ever again. We can never feel lack ever again. We can never be touched by sin ever again. That's what we need. Well, God sees what we need. And he wants more than anything to be our God. That's what he wants. That's what he's busy with. And he's busy looking at himself. And, he, and he's thinking, I have within myself the kind of life that can meet all their needs. And I'm the only one that has this life in myself. And so I'm the only one that can be their God. And so he wants more than anything to be your God. You can easily say it this way, and it will be so offensive to the carnal mind. It will be so offensive to the wisdom in this world. You'll label me a blasphemer. God ever lives to serve you with life. If you want to put human language to it, he wakes up in the morning to serve you with life. He's like, I got the kind of life that can provide peace and love and joy. I got it. That's what they need. I got it. And what he sees is these people, us, my people, they are needing to be cleansed from the death that found an opportunity to manifest in their flesh because of sin. They are needing the accusation of the evil one to be cast out. They, and they are needing for their hearts to be filled with faith towards me. This is what these people need. They are needing to see that I can only ever be good to them so they will come to me. And you know what he says? I know the way that I'm going to do it. I'm going to release the word of my life into the earth and my life is going to perform a work. God says, I will provide myself a lamb. And the lamb that I provide will take away the death that sin is punishing them with. And they will see the thoughts in my heart towards them is to reward them with an indestructible life. And they will see that I'm with them to be their God. We needed a lamb. We needed a lamb that could remove the death. And we needed a lamb that could clothe upon us with an indestructible life. God says, I'll provide myself as that lamb. And when they see that I've provided myself as that lamb, they'll see that I will care for their lives exceedingly abundantly above they can ask or think, and they will cast their cares upon me and commit the caring of their life into the strength of my hand. Mm -mm -mm. That's what God's wanting, guys. He's wanting to be the father of your life. He's wanting to father his life in you. He's wanting you to see that he's the one who will father his life in you. 
because he's wanting you to be able to live as little children. So what he does is he comes and shows you the care he's taken for your life and the thought he's taken for your life in Jesus. And he knows if your heart can be persuaded that the work that is needed for you to be set apart from death and unto life is finished by the power of his lamb, he knows that if you could see the work that is needed for you to be clothed upon with the life of his lamb, if you could see that's finished, then your hearts will be circumcised from looking to the strength in your own hand. And your hearts will be filled with looking to the strength in God's hand. And this is what God is thinking to bring it full circle. This is what God is thinking when he says, I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. He's talking about, I will write on their hearts the word of the lamb I provided. Go read the letter to the Hebrews. It's all about God sanctifying us once for all time by the blood of his lamb. I will write on their hearts. I will put it in their minds, the lamb. It's not about thou shouts and thou shalt nots. He's not saying I will write thou shouts and thou shalt nots on their hearts. You know what the word, the word laws means in Hebrews? Teaching and instruction. Teaching and instruction. Well, we just, man, I just spent an hour going through it all. What is it that God's trying to teach us? I will be your father. I will be your God. I possess in myself the life and the ability to serve you with what you need. And I don't need anything from you. That's what he's trying to teach and instruct us. Why? Because he wants us to enjoy the rest that comes from walking in the work he's performed. That's why Hebrews 4 goes on to say, there remains a rest for the people of God. There is a rest contained in the work God has performed. And he wants to write the teaching and instruction about who he is and what he's done to serve us with life in our hearts. So we find our lives being swallowed up by the rest that comes from his hand. Oh, man. I mean, what is it God is trying to teach us and instruct us? Hebrews 8 says, he's trying to, it's the teaching and instruction of God is about God persuading us that he's our God. The whole point of it is, I will be their God and they will be my people. So I'm trying to teach them about how I'm with them to be their God so that they can live as my people. That's the whole point. That's what the whole thing is about. I mean, what does Jesus say? I mean, the whole point is for us to be able to live as little children. What does Jesus say? Unless you become as little children, you shall not partake of the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what the laws God puts in our minds and writes on our hearts is all about. It's all about God showing mankind the thought he's taken to care for our lives. So fear is removed and we live as little children no longer carrying the cares that come along with trying to preserve a life that's perishable. So we're no longer carrying the burden of trying to suck peace and love and joy out of a life that's perishable. But we see God has a life that will serve us with those things. And if you want to connect it to somewhere else in the scriptures, it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that God writes on our hearts. Go and read Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that God writes puts in our minds and writes on our hearts. And what is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? If you go and read Romans 8, do you know what it says that it is? It says that God condemned death. God was with us to condemn the death that was condemning us. And so death was condemning us 
filling us with fear, telling us that we were a people that didn't have a God. And since we're a people who don't have a God, we got to be our own gods. Well, God comes and writes the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus on our hearts, which law says that God is with us to condemn the death that was condemning us. That's what it means that God condemns sin in the flesh. He condemned the death that was manifesting in our flesh that was tormenting us. The body of death that was telling us, oh, wretched man that I am. He came and condemned that death in our midst. And now it's written on our hearts that he's with us and that nothing in this world can separate us from the love he feels for us. Hallelujah. I mean, the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit called? Spirit of truth. What did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit being called the Spirit of truth? He says it's called the Spirit of truth because the Spirit guides you into everything that Jesus revealed about the goodness in God's heart towards you. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, was walking around manifesting the goodness in the Father towards everyone. That was the truth. And he says the Holy Spirit will come, the Spirit of truth, and that Holy Spirit will guide you into the place where you see that God is with you to be good to you. And you will know that he's your God, and you will live as his people, a people served by God. (laughs) Oh, glory to God. So we'll we'll just finish with this. Thank you guys so much for your patience. I just want to put it back in its words. So if we interpret Hebrews 8 properly, this is what God is saying. I will write on their hearts the teaching and instruction that will cause them to see me as their God. I will put in their minds the words of my work to set them apart from death unto life. I will write on their hearts the words, the words of the Lamb I provided to cleanse them from death. And the words of the Lamb I provided to sanctify them from death will be as a two-edged sword. It will be as a two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intents of their hearts, circumcising their hearts from looking to their own works and put their flesh to rest. That's what he's saying there. It just says, the, I mean, Hebrews 4, what does it say? The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Dividing asunder, that which is flesh from spirit, bone from arrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the the word God comes to write on our hearts, the words of the work he did in his lamb. And that's sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns our hearts, and it reveals to us that God's with us, and it circumcises our hearts from having other gods because we see God is more than the God we need. Mm. That's the writing on the heart. So don't ever let anybody tell you ever again that it's about God writing on your heart the things you need to do. He's writing on your heart the things that he did. You understand? All you need to know is the things that he did. (laughs) And so when you become confused about life, if you encounter things in the world, ask God to remind you what he did. Ask God to remind you that he's with you to be your God. Ask God to quicken inside of you the words of his lamb. Ask God to remind you that he's cleansed you from the wound of death. Ask God to remind you what he's done to clothe you 
in the life of his lamb. That's it. Glory to God. Thank you, Father. That uh, you haven't left us to sort out our own hearts. That uh, you never made us to sort out our own hearts. Thank you, Father, that uh, you're a good father. You're not the kind of father that demands things from us, but you're the kind of father that provides everything. And you don't just provide everything and walk away, but you provide everything and then you sit with us and you teach us about what you've done to provide us with everything. Just thank you, Lord, that you poured out your Holy Spirit and that your Holy Spirit contains the words of your Lamb. Just thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit is in our hearts today and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it's discerning our hearts. It is persuading our hearts that you are with us to be the God that we need, that you are with us to be the one who will father your life in us and that you don't require anything from us. Thank you, Father, that you are with us to exalt us by the strength in your hand. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for letting me minister to you today.